quite a lot of time with it. Alistair Begg maybe set the record. He actually spent four Sundays making his way through the passage that we're going to look at today and joked that he was trying to see just how, how far he could go with a single passage. Um, and that's not to brace you for a particularly long sermon this morning necessarily, um, but the reason for the time is that despite the clarity, this passage confronts us with things that are really important, hard to hear, and, and difficult to live out. I, um, I may have told you this story, but uh, when I was preparing to preach for the first time, I was like, I, I'm just going to do a softball. I'm going to look for something that's just pure encouragement, and, um, and people are just going to be, you know, that's going to be great. And every, every passage I really strove to do that with, uh, the Lord um, uh, disrupted my plan. You know, it, they all, for, for some way, uh, have some convicting parts along with the edifying parts. And so uh, that could happen to you. Um, if it does, um, God did it. Okay, and so, uh, and it's for your good. And so let's, let's look at what uh, the Lord has to say to us today. 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 23, and the passage goes to 11.1. All things are helpful, but not all things, excuse me, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of your Holy Spirit that inspired it and now illumines it to the hearts of your saints. We pray, Lord, it is all good for us, and so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it. You would guard us from error. There is simplicity here, Lord, but it is also it's a challenging, complicated subject, and so, so we pray that you would help us with it, and that you would grow us to be more like Christ through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever walked into a place and just felt like you didn't belong? Yeah, I hate that feeling. 
Um, sometimes it's just our own mood or the normal awkwardness of a new place or a new relationship. And sometimes it's more than that, right? It's an awkwardness that is echoed by the other people in the room uh, through their stares and, and their tone. And it almost feels a little bit shameful to continue standing in that place, like you're, you're taking uh, some kind of antagonistic stance against nature, right? I know you know what I mean. And so, so where does all of that come from? And I think we've all been there enough to know that too. It's like that old Sesame Street game. You remember that? Uh, one of these is not like the other, right? The problem is in some way we are different. We don't enjoy quite the same music or clothes or beer or occupy quite the same income bracket or whatever, and so we don't belong. Well, that's some of what's going on in Corinth. There's, there's a divide between the Christians who think they can eat food sacrificed to idols and, and those who think they can't. And on the basis of their faith, they've determined that there isn't enough room for both of them in this place. And so you may remember one of them, after sufficient frustration, takes it upon themselves to write to Paul to seek a resolution. Who's right or which one of us needs to go? Doesn't fit here. Doesn't belong. And he's been responding to that question from all the way back in chapter 8. But it's never really been about food. There's always been a bigger issue, and that's why all the time that Paul's spending on it. They're confused over what theologians call Christian liberty. And it's such an important matter that our, our confession actually takes a whole chapter to deal with it. It covers a whole bunch of important stuff. It covers things like being liberated from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, bondage to Satan, the sting of death, and more. Wonderful, good news things. But what Paul is addressing here is the more narrow slice of that 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 I guess we probably most think about with this, that deals with that space in the Christian life in which we are free to be different or to choose. Now to be clear, this is not freedom to do stuff that God tells us not to do or to neglect those things that God tells us to do. In other words, it's not freedom to sin, but it's freedom to choose between things that are not sin. For instance, we're not told exactly who we have to marry, which church we have to go to, where we have to work, uh, what we have to eat, etc., all, all kinds of things. But, but nonetheless, the church has often struggled to know how to draw the lines on these things. And that's what the Corinthians are wrestling with here. One group is claiming the other is, is sinfully over-narrowing Christian liberty, they say all things are lawful. That's, that's what Paul's quoting, their slogan, all things are lawful. And positively, we could call that group the freedom group or the grace group or, or more negatively, the licentious group. On the other side, there's a group that says that that group is sinfully overextending Christian liberty. And positively, we could call them the rules and good order group or negatively perhaps the legalism group and maybe just on that little description you can start to place yourself where where you lean right 
In other words, this is a debate that's still going on today, and we're all participating in it. We all have our thoughts on it. And we also know that it's a debate in which errors cause incredible damage to the saints, injury, and they distort the witness of the church. And so how does Paul help us here? Well, first, he, he presents the guiding principle for Christian liberty. Second, he applies it. And third, he expands on it. And so let's look at those in turn. Point one, the guiding principle. Paul says, verse one, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You could say this is the balance that is Christian liberty. On the one side, we have the right to prefer beaches over mountains, or warm weather over cold, Macs over PCs, and, and all kinds of other things. But as Paul pointed out, all the way back in chapter 8, just because we have the right to be different doesn't mean our making use of this right is always helpful. And why? Well, fundamentally, because we're not alone in this world. There are other people in the equation, and they matter. In fact, Paul says that they matter even more than we do. That's why he says in verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You just think about that. Christian liberty is a blessing, and it's meant for our enjoyment. God gives you all manner of things to enjoy. You think back to the garden. God puts Adam in the garden. He says, don't eat of that tree, but all the rest, eat. And according to your creative preferences, here's all the animals, name them according to creative preferences. And God seems to take a delight in that. And yet it's not ultimately for our enjoyment for the sake of our advantage or our comfort, but to serve the good of our neighbor. This is the higher principle that is supposed to govern our Christian liberty. And so how does that work in practice? That's what Paul moves on next. Point to a few applications. Paul says, verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, perhaps in isolation, that seems pretty straightforward, not so challenging, but in the context, this had to have been pretty perplexing stuff. Remember how this issue rose to the surface and it's been dealt with so far, and this, this letter is being read aloud, and everybody is sitting like this, and Paul is just going through, okay? Despite the adamant urgings of the licentious group, these victim brothers... The rules and good order uh, group refused on the ground of conscience, and Paul defended them for doing so. He even went so far as to say, if food makes my brother stumble because it conflicts with his conscience, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And not only that, but on top of that, he also rebuked them for failing to take the race of the Christian life seriously and for their insensitivity to spiritual things. In fact, Virtually everything up to this point could be viewed as a rebuke of the licentious group and thereby a de facto endorsement of the alternative rules and good order policy. Hooray for rules, right? Rules win. But Paul doesn't stop at verse 24. He makes a clear shift in application away from the Freedom Party to those who lean towards legalism. And so what do we see here? 
Well, firstly, we see how they see themselves. As they walk through the meat market, they're acting like divinely called discernment police. You ever run into that mindset? Maybe, maybe that's you. Um, everywhere they go and everything they see is being passed through a kind of moral grid. And then they're pronouncing judgment on it. That's right. That's wrong. That's this much right. That's this much wrong. You need to move this way a little bit. And while there are times when that's certainly appropriate, Paul says it isn't here. And that's even though almost all of the food that's sold there, and Paul knows this, was first offered to some kind of idol. Paul says, eat whatever without raising a question on the ground of conscience. And so you might properly ask, why? Is Paul promoting a new ignorance is bliss tactic to the Christian life? Since I don't know for sure, then I'm safe. If I step into the sin, say backwards, then it's not really sin. You ever tried that? Well, Paul's not saying that. Paul Paul excludes all of that kind of nonsense in his justification. He says, verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, food included. In other words, the reason there's no need to question isn't so you don't find out, but because there isn't a problem here. If you want to get legalistic, you're calling something bad that God calls good. Or to put it another way, way, the reason we can eat whatever without raising a question on the ground of conscience isn't because ignorance is bliss, but because this isn't a conscience issue. And that by itself is something to think about. It tells us something about our world. Not everything is supposed to be a conscience issue. Oftentimes we err in the other direction to an overly secularized view of the world. But we, we can do the same on the other side. We err in taking an overly spiritual view of the world. It's when we superstitiously conflate everything into a moral equation. That's what Paul is saying here. God hasn't freed us in Christ to, as Alistair Begg puts it, tie ourselves into knots. And so, ease up. We always need to consider our motives, but there isn't an inherently moral dimension to what kind of work we do, college we go to, food we eat, how we spend our money. And so we, we need to settle down a little bit. It's, it's true that the licentious group wasn't being sensitive or serious enough, but we can overreact on the other side just as well. And Paul says that goes for dinner invitations as well. He says, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go again, eat whatever is set before you, and again, without raising any question on the ground of conscience, i.e. eat and enjoy it. And why? Well, because there's still no problem here. And that tells us again about us. It's the idea that our hyperactive legalism bent can create problems where there doesn't need to be problems, where there wouldn't have been problems otherwise. And yet sometimes they still come, don't they? Just shh, right out on the table. And so Paul continues, verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his, i.e., if, if this thing happens to become a public issue, then you might pull back or restrain your right. But interestingly, same thing, not on the ground 
that the new context presents an issue for our conscience as if we're now no longer free to eat, but because we're concerned about how it might be interpreted by the other person. It's something that Therefore, it might look different in different situations. For instance, you maybe think about drinking alcohol in front of an unbeliever who knows you're an unbeliever. That could hurt your witness. I.e., see, Christians are hypocrites. They say, don't drink, and then look, they drink. But in another situation, if they're was a pre-existing relationship or an opportunity to explain or something else, this interaction might be handled differently. It could be a place to teach someone about Christian liberty, about what Christians actually believe. The point is, the public presentation of the issue hasn't turned it into a conscience issue for you, but a wisdom issue, and that's what Paul explains in verse 29. He says, "'For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness,' Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? What, why should I be bound? It's, it's binding other people's conscience. Again, the real reason for restricting our rights isn't because our conscience is bound to the strictest or most ignorant in the room, but, but because we are more concerned about how to minister to them than we are about our rights. It's the same guiding principle that Paul started with in the beginning. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And that's what he returns to again at the end, point three, the end, root, and breadth of the guiding principle of Christian liberty. Paul says, verse 31 and following, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so here again, Paul returns to that plain and simple message, just as he said before. While Christian liberty is supposed to be a blessing, it's not ultimately about our blessing, but others. And now more pointedly, for the end of their salvation and thus the glory of God. And this applies, he says, not only to food sacrificed to idols, but to what Paul describes as whatever you do and with whoever you do it, giving no offense to the whole spectrum of humanity, Jews, Greeks, or Christians. And why? Well, because as Paul makes more clear here, it's, it's Christian liberty. It's Christian liberty, not, not state your name, liberty. It's because this is how Christ used his liberty, and that's who we're supposed to be imitating with ours. It's the dynamic that uh, Paul brings out in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and to the end of your salvation for the glory of God. In other words, despite Christ possessing power and glory and liberty beyond which none of us could possibly comprehend, he didn't use it for his own exaltation, but for ours. He exercised his liberty to restrict his liberty in order to secure our liberty for the glory of God. In still other words, he used his liberty to accomplish the work of the gospel. And that's ultimately what this aspect of Christian Christian liberty is, is meant to point to. It's not ultimately for our end, but like Christ, an imitation of Christ for the salvation of many for the glory of God. And so what do we take away from this? Well, the same thing really that the Corinthians need to. Sometimes our practice of Christian liberty doesn't look enough like Christ's. Something that struck me on this point is our our church uh, business card. I've got a copy here. You can pick one out up on the the welcome table if you'd like. But I don't know if you've noticed it, but on, on the very top, in bright red letters, it says, you are welcome here, exclamation point. I like it a lot. Um, it feels warm, welcoming. Um, but, but who do we really mean is welcomed here? It's a question that Jim, Jim Heemstra raised with me when we were talking about church planting. He said the church plant needs to think about what kind of person would feel welcome at their church. And I thought, you know, so do we. It's really the same question that occurs to us all the time. Whenever we think about inviting a neighbor here, we think about this question. Will they feel welcome or not? And then we make decisions accordingly. And sometimes we say, no, they won't. And that's what I'd like us to think about. Surely there are right reasons for someone to feel uncomfortable here. I would think that an atheist or a Muslim or an unrepentant Christian confronted with the gospel and the praise of Christ, would feel at least a little uncomfortable, just as we would if we were to attend their activities. But, but sometimes professing Christians, professing Christians who love the Lord and who are striving to grow and walk in repentance, they also feel uncomfortable here. And that can get at our practice of Christian liberty. As I mentioned in the beginning, the church normally veers towards two wrong answers here. One, licentiousness, and the other, legalism. The one makes the church into a self-proclaiming social club where everyone's welcome, and no one would ever be allowed to raise a question on the ground of conscience. And the other, a crystal cathedral of superficial clones where there's a question around every corner. So which way do you lean? probably both to varying extents at varying times, but I think our more common temptation, and forgive me if this is rubbing you the wrong way, is toward a subtle but often unspoken legalism. Are there any rules, people, here today? Okay? We we say things... In silence, of course, or at least behind closed doors, but but we say them. We say things like, you don't have to be Dutch to be a Christian, but it it does make it easier 
and you will eventually have to act Dutch. You don't need to affiliate with this political party. Excuse me, you do need to affiliate with this political party. You do need to homeschool your kids or send them to Christian school or particularly this Christian school. You do need to be married. You do need to have about five kids, but preferably 10 would make you better. You do need to be in approximately this age and income bracket, drive this kind of car, listen to this music, and we could add more to the list. And I think you know what I mean. Now, I know I jest a little, but some of this stuff, it happens. It happens here. And it's not supposed to happen here. There's no Christ-ordered mandate of uniformity on these things. Wisdom, of course, applies to many of them, but we don't need to raise a question on the ground of conscience, and we ought not to. Because this is the realm of Christian liberty, and Christ has freed us to be different here. You see, Christ's church is neither a nothing-but-tolerance-unites-us social club or a pretend-we're-all-the-same crystal cathedral, but in a community of wildly diverse saints from every tribe, nation, and tongue who are elected and converted by Christ and whose tie to one another is based not on their political affiliation, cultural background, or spending or education choices, but their tie to Christ. And yet sometimes Christians, even, even Christians here, constrain other Christians here. It's the same thing Paul was talking about at Corinth, and so why? What's wrong with us? Well, admittedly, and I, I don't know if I can state this strongly enough, this is really difficult stuff. It's complicated stuff to navigate, because right in line with the things that we have freedom to do, there, there's motives behind those things, and those do matter. And we, we can have right motives and wrong motives. But Paul points out to at least one common problem, and that is that we don't really care about other people like Christ cares about other people. We're more concerned about how they might affect our advantage, our comfort, and our stuff than we are about them, Christ, and Christ's glory. And in our doing so, we distort Christian liberty and the church into my liberty for me. You could capture our guiding principle in, in me first. I exercised this the other day when I was cooking bacon for my family. Which one is the biggest? I need to make sure that that's reserved so that I get maximum bacon intake. And we, and we do this all the time in and, and so many different ways. It, it, it's, it's the stuff that says, if you're going to get in my way of my rights, you're going to get moved. Or if you're, if you're not going to listen to my rules, you're going to get judged. But by the grace of God, that's not how Christ treats us. And that's where Paul points us for the cure to our Christian liberty distortions. In other words, as we think about Christian liberty, we need to keep thinking about how Christ used His. And so think about that. Despite having every warrant to exclude us and condemn us, He doesn't. He doesn't leave us, forsake us, push us off, but He condescends from all heavenly glory to pursue the very same people that the world casts out, calls destitute, and declares hopeless. And then he lifts them up, brings them in, dwells with them, not for a little while, not for a token peace, but forever, and then he preserves them so that they never fall away. And why? 
Well, because he actually cares about us. You could could put it this way. He loves us. And that's really the key to the right practice of Christian liberty. Gordon Fee puts it this way. It is not as much about knowledge and rights as it is about humility, love, and freedom. The one, knowledge and rights, leads to pride and selfish ambition. And the other, love and freedom, to edification and self-sacrifice to that end. It's what makes Christ eager to welcome our unique self in this place. And it's what inspires Paul, who is free from all, to become a servant of all so that he might save more of them. And so let's not be scared by how Christ exercises his liberty, but likewise inspired to imitate him by loving others more, by loving others more in the exercise of ours. Let's strive to put to death the root of pride that that remains in us and be a people who alongside of Christ can say to those who should be welcome here, you really are, you really are welcome here. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your creativity in this world and your creativity with us. And Lord, your desire, even in our differences, to to love us and unite us to yourself and to one another. We pray, Lord, that where there is uh, pride and, and arrogance and the Christian liberty ways that we, we do things and uh, casting dispersions and judgment on our brothers and sisters, I pray, Lord, that you would, would show that to us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a genuine warmth and love for these other men and women made in the image of God who you have redeemed in Christ and that love might more and more be the theme of, of our community of wildly diverse saints. Because that's your church, Lord, and, and you are glorified in our dwelling together because our tie is to Christ and because we love Christ and we love the people of Christ. Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.